0: to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Batteridge. On September 2nd, Dr Jude Howell from the London School of Economics and Political Sciences provided an overview of the issues arising from the securitisation of aid following 9-11. Her talk touched on the practical issues of aid delivery as well as the questions around the security and safety of aid workers.
1: Before before I introduce um, Professor Jude Howell, um, like all events at the Australian National University, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet, and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Now, um, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce Jude Howe, because uh, and, and, and the School of Arcanat, where I'm from, is hosting Jude, and it's almost sort of sort of a fortuitous reciprocal arrangement because um, Jude and the LSE hosted me in London two years ago. And so so that's fantastic. Now, Jude is a professor of international development at the LSE. Um, She's written extensively on issues relating to civil society. And it's probably worth noting, because Joe is here, that um, probably in 2009, was it? 2010, give or take, um, there was a review of... Um, civil society and Australian NGOs and Jude and Joe led that and that resulted in the civil society framework which is still current Um, she's also done uh, China is a particular thing but she's also done research in India, Mozambique, Kenya and Afghanistan Um, she's written extensively um, um, but what today's lecture will touch upon is, is her book, The Global War on Terror, Aid and Civil Society, which came out in 2009. She's also done uh, Civil Society Under, uh, Under Strain, which also reflects on the issues of um, global security.
2: Thank you, Jude. Okay, thank you very much. Um, just okay. Can you hear me okay at the back? Cause, uh, thank you. I first want to start off by thanking Patrick from the School of, whatever you call it, Art and Arc or something, <laughs> and, and the Crawford Development Policy Centre for hosting this today. And my talk is about the securitisation of NGOs, development NGOs, post 9-11. And by securitisation, I'm talking about the way in which that development NGOs, both international and uh, local have been increasingly drawn into uh, national and global security agendas. And this has involved a bif- what I call a bifurcated strategy, two-dimensional strategy of, on the one hand, containment of, of certain types of development NGOs and engagement with others for the purposes of co-producing development and security. Um, and this kind of... This bifurcated strategy, these dual perspectives on development NGOs I think are well reflected in some of the statements of politicians and administrators um, at the time. So let me first of all give you an example of this from this is Gordon Brown in younger years um, (laughs) uh, when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer in October 2006 and he was uh, talking about money laundering and the new Uh, Financial Action Task Force Regulations on Money laundering, and he said that we can address directly three of the most dangerous sources of terrorist finance, the abuse of charities abuse of money service businesses and abuse of financial transactions we know that many charities and donors have been and are being exploited by terrorists so this is an interesting statement controversial of course and um, in contrast to that, but uh, an- another perspective is uh, given here in the speech of Colin Powell in 2001. He says, and I want you to know that I am serious about making sure we have the best relationship with NGOs, and this is a key point, who are such a force multiplier for us, such an important part of our combat team, and references in Iraq and Afghanistan. Similarly, about 10 years later, we have um, the State Department's Coordinator for Counterterrorism also saying in a similar vein, there is probably no success in that area that can happen without civil society. So many of the societies we engage in, it's the NGOs that have the ground knowledge which is vitally important. We need, and so on. We need to confront the political, social and economic conditions that our enemies exploit to win over the new recruits. So these uh, three sort of quotes, and there are many more, sort of reflect this bifurcated strategy, which we have seen uh, expanded and deepened since 9-11. And in the talk today, which is based on research that we carried out in Afghanistan, Kenya, India, uh, UK, US, and and Denmark, we uh, put forward three key arguments. Firstly, that development NGOs have become a second-order-associated threat requiring extraordinary measures. And by that I mean that we have a, a meta-threat, which is um, terrorism. In the past, it was uh, the Cold, Cold War and communism. Um, and a second-order threat is and a threat that becomes, it becomes associated by assertion or whatever. And so developmententios... Um, have become a second-order associated threat requiring extraordinary measures, extraordinary regulation, extraordinary legislation, practices and, and so on that are beyond what is normally done. The second point that we make in our research is that securitising an issue involves not just negative repressive measures. So the story is not that, oh, my goodness, development NGOs are all being repressed all over the world. It's not that. um, But that also there are positive and inclusionary measures. And this is well reflected in the strategy of engagement. Um, Thirdly, that the strategies of containment and engagement evoke a wide spectrum of responses from NGOs, which is not surprising. Um, and I think it raises a whole lot of issues and dilemmas for NGOs as well, which I want to touch on at the end of the talk. So, what I'm going to talk about today is first quickly review some of the historical background to contentious state NGO relations, because this is important to understand that background in order to understand how the idea. Of an associated threat of how development NGOs could be seen as an uh, associated threat comes on to the agenda then I will talk about the particular institutional procedures that have been uh, and regulations and so on which have been adopted since 9-11 and finally I look at some of the responses of development NGOs to this and the dilemmas that this poses and I think I've got 35 minutes and I'm running out already uh, okay um, basically what we argue is that to understand what is happening today with development NGOs you have to situate it in a broader context and that broader context is basically got three key phases you could say the Cold War period, the post Cold War period and post 9-11 and actually in all three periods we see a strategy on the part of uh, governments of containment and engagement or development to NGOs um, for different purposes so if, um, t- for example, in the 50s, 60s, 70s and during the Vietnam War and so on, the um, Australian colombo Plan for Economic Technical Cooperation was an uh, attempt to counter-terrorism in uh, newly formed post-colonial states of Southeast Asia by um, raising li- living standards and therefore removing the conditions which might be attractive to people to support uh, communist uh, forces. Um, if we look at, for example, Vietnam and the anti-Soviet war in Afghanistan, um, this, this was occurring at a time when development as a field of uh, practice, a field of policy, a uh, field of its inf- institutional infrastructure was expanding hugely. That was from the 1960s onwards. And from the 1960s onwards, we also see the gradual increase in the number of development NGOs. So, for example, in Vietnam, um, it has been documented um, by various authors that um, the uh, organisations like CARE and uh, Catholic Relief Services were deployed by the US government in delivering food aid to South Vietnamese forces. Um, At the same time, in hopping later on towards the anti-Soviet struggle Um, in Afghanistan in the uh, 1980s. Again, uh, the work of uh, Helga Bateman, for example, draws attention to the way that cross-border development NGOs in Pakistan and Afghanistan uh, were used to channel uh, resources to um, anti-Soviet commanders in Afghanistan during the 1980s. Um, And, of course, this was not without controversy, As, um, in fact, pointed out by Patrick in his own writing, ACFID was uh, reluctant to, um, to without conditions, fully support um, to provide aid to um, South Vietnam, um, but made it a condition that it would only do this if there there were no links to the military in doing so. Um, And, of course, NGOs have different perspectives on this as well. Um, Helga Bethenen uh, points out that actually some of the uh, NGOs that were involved in the um, relief and development efforts in the the Soviet period in Afghanistan uh, were very actually clear about their political interests and had actually a history of working in uh, contexts such as El Salvador um, in delivering aid and development for the purposes um, of um, anti-communism. But at the same time, during that period, as we all know, um, there was also um, attempts to contain those uh, development NGOs from supporting uh, communist objectives. So, for example, um, any um, development NGO that received federal funds could not provide aid in Cuba, North Korea or North Vietnam. Now, that, it's interesting to point that out because we see a similar uh, strategy later on in post 11 um, When we come to the post-Cold War era, this is a very interesting period, and I'm talking here from the 1990s onwards up to the uh, Twin Tower attacks, on, uh, attacks in uh, September, uh, September 2001. Um, in many ways, this was a golden decade for NGOs because the Soviet uh, Union had collapsed Most communist regimes, apart from a few, had um, collapsed. Um, And this um, then heralded a a context of um, uh, promoting democracy, promoting liberal democracy, promoting liberal values, and promoting a governance agenda in development. And it was in this context of good governance agenda which celebrated also the role of civil society in process of development, as being very important for advancing democratisation and also for dealing with poverty reduction. Um, It was during this decade that many donors began to channel more funds to NGOs and also to set up dedicated civil society units and uh, departments to foster the development of civil society in newly democratising states. So we see in contrast in some ways... This, a tip in the balance between the politics of suspicion to certain development NGOs to a politics of embrace, of bringing development NGOs into um, development policy in a, in a more structured way. Um, at the same time, NGOs were, of course, extending uh, their own work into conflict prevention work, security sector reform and transitional justice, just as the UN, too, was changing... Um, it's uh, expanding its role in the post Cold War era. But this, um, so we had here around 10 years in which uh, donor agencies and NGOs actually had far closer collaboration than before and gained a lot of experience with working with each other. And it was in this context that there was a reassessment, uh, a kind of tidy up and a reassessment of that relationship with NGOs. And that occurred also within a context where um, aid modalities were beginning to change and we moved on to the Paris Declaration and so on. Um, But um, some of the concerns that multilaterals and bilaterals were expressing was, well, you know, the transaction costs of working with a lot of NGOs, how to scale up, um, you know, the wonderful things that some of them were able to do. Um, but there were also concerns about issues of accountability, uh, transparency, and with the increasing number of accredited organisations going to the non-governmental parallel summits, uh, there were concerns within the UN about representativity, who exactly did some of these organisations represent. So there was a kind of tidying up and a rethinking and you know, maybe just reflect a bit on 10 years of experience and how can we do this uh, better um, now, it was at that juncture that the attacks in New York took place and President Bush launched uh, the War on Terror. And I think that's very important because um, we, without understanding this whole background, it's difficult to understand how it is that um, people could be persuaded, or, or an attempt was tried to persuade people that. Um, NGOs were perhaps a, an associated threat in terrorism, particularly because they might be vulnerable to abuse by terrorist organisations. So there was a kind of a shadow of suspicion and mistrust cast over development NGOs, and NGOs became associated as a second-order threat in the struggle against terrorism, um, that means they're not the direct. The direct threat is a terrorism. A second-order threat is something that's associated with it, with that. Um, so NGOs once again become positioned as subjects of surveillance and as adjutants or assistants in co-producing security and development. Um, what do we mean? Uh, well, to do that, I, I gave some examples of the kind of statements which begin to. Uh, Link NGOs with uh, terrorists or to cast doubt upon the potential uh, abuse by terrorist organisations. But you also, that's a discursive side which I'll also give some more examples of in the development field. But this um, strategy has also been institutionalised through extraordinary legal and regulatory measures. Um, And institutionalised In practice, through hearts and minds work, both in conflict situations and the related um, anti radicalization, anti extremism work, both domestically and externally. Um, Just to give you some examples again of this, what we call discursive um, presentation of links between uh, security aid and civil society, here's a quote from uh, Hilary Benn, who was. Um, the Secretary of State for International Development um, in, where well, he was introducing a 2005 DFID report on security. Um, in recent years DFID has become Department for International Development of the UK has begun to bring security into the heart of its thinking and practice but we need to do more and uh, in a similar vein Tony Blair Prime Minister at times, time says well it's absurd to choose between an agenda focusing on terrorism and one on global poverty. So this is you, you will see this quite a lot in statements of politicians and administrations, making this link uh, between terrorism and poverty. Um, and Hillary Clinton in 2009 says, there are three legs to the American foreign policy, defence, diplomacy and development. And we are responsible for two of these three legs, and so on. We will make clear as we go forward that diplomacy and development are essential tools in achieving the long-term objectives of the United States. Um, I also have a quote from AusAid. Back in 2005, Bruce Davis gave a speech to the Australian uh, Strategic Institute, um, again highlighting the fact that security and... uh, the and development are becoming more closely intertwined, with implications, as we should see later, for NGOs. Um, he says, indeed, it's, it is a measure of the holistic manner in which strategic issues are now understood in Australia that an AusAID representative would be invited to address a defence and security forum of this kind. It wasn't too long ago that aid and development lay firmly on the periphery of serious considerations of Australia's security and strategic interests. I think that's interesting. Aid was often regarded as a somewhat ill-defined process of doing good, a process which had little tangible impact on the strategic environment. These, an important point, these times are now over. So we (laughs) see this rhetorical and actually policy um, intertwining of development and security. Um, um, following the, in the context of the uh, war on terror. Okay, so how do these things then play out? Um, When you securitize an issue, that involves introducing extraordinary legal and regulatory measures. And of course, you also have to persuade people that you need to do this. So hence, climate of fear becomes very important in trying to do that. And we kind of think of, Think of um, first order kind of measures which are directly related to counterterrorism, such as the amendments or introduction of counterterrorist um, acts, uh, electronic surveillance, uh, practices of rendition, um, uh, military invasion, and so on. And then we have also ex- a set you could call, call them second order kind of measures which percolate into the fabric of different policy areas and institutions so what I mean there is for example if you look at education or you look at asylum policy or immigration policy or if you look at uh, policy towards um, NGOs you'll begin to see how terrorist issues begin to percolate percolate into the policy and practice of these organisations of these different fields Um, So the kind of issues, the kind of measures I I thought I'd pick out to have a look at, um, the extraordinary legal and regulatory measures, include the lists of terrorist organisations. Of course there were lists before, but these have been expanded and a special category of uh, terrorist organisations was introduced after um, 9-11. And the complicated thing with these is that... um, different countries the US has its own list the UK has its own list the EU has its list the UN has its list they don't always overlap so for example in the US the uh, uh, International Palestinian Relief and Development Fund is a designated terrorist organisation in the UK it is not but the UK of course came under pressure to actually almost prove it wasn't So the Charity Commission, which is the main regulating body for charities in the UK, uh, did three investigations um, of Interpal over a number of years um, to examine whether or not Interpal had any um, connections with terrorist groups or not, and it did not find any evidence to support that. Uh, Though in the third investigation they found that there was a connection of one of the trustees with an organisation called the Union of the Good, which uh, was a listed organisation, and so they were recommended to withdraw any uh, connection to that Union of the Good. Um, a, A second very important legal regulatory measure in the United States is the Patriot Act that was introduced by George Bush, And what's relevant here is the material support clause, which is particularly problematic for NGOs because it makes it illegal and criminal to provide any support to terrorist groups, and that includes intangibles such as technical assistance, um, advice, um, education, and so on. So there's a well-known, well-documented case study... Of a group called the Humanitarian Law Project, which had been providing um, advice to the Kurdish Workers Party and Tamil Elam part- party at the time to um, to help them sort of find ways to to resolve the conflict, so they were providing legal advice on on conflict resolution. Now they were really concerned that the Patriot was going to make them subject to criminal prosecution uh, because this could, it, could this actually mean it was material support? Um, and um, one sort of court, uh, one federal court ruled that actually the material support clause violated the American Constitution. In 2010, <coughs> the Supreme Court came back and said it upheld that. So the problem is that the material support clause is um, very vague, and it's difficult for... Um, NGOs to know exactly what to do with that. Just going forward to another slide. I mean, this is, for example, this is in 2010. Anna Wilmot, an attorney with the Save the Children Fund, commented that under the OFCAT, the Office for um, oh God, Financial Assets Control in the Treasury, um, it, under its regulations for working in Somalia, it says you can't, in fact, build a well for water for a drought-stricken area because someone from Al-Shabaab might come along and ask for a cup of water from that well. And would that mean you have then been providing material support to a terrorist organization? So it places NGOs in a very difficult situation, especially when they work in conflict areas uh, or in uh, Muslim-majority countries. Um, The third dimension of this is the Fatwa Special Recommendation 8, uh, the Financial Action Task Force, which is um, deals with money laundering, anti money laundering regulation, they introduced a new rec- recommendation um, after the nine eleven attacks uh, requiring that charities and money service agencies um, and universities should be um, should subject to anti money laundering regulations, so they were asked to up their um, banks were asked to check the transfers of um, charities, of uh, money service agencies and universities to ensure that money laundering did not occur. That again has proved rather problematic for some NGOs, particularly working in Somalia where uh, they use informal transaction uh, methods to to deliver uh, funding to to uh, projects in, in Somalia And a number of people have expressed concern about that. Also about the extra work it creates for uh, development NGOs. Um, A fourth notable extraordinary measure is the anti-terrorism certificate. Now, this applies in the United States, but not... I don't think it applies in Australia, you'll have to tell me, but also not in the UK. But it means that anybody receiving US funds working abroad has to sign an anti-terrorist certificate saying that none of the money is being used by um, terrorist groups and that none of your staff members or relatives of your staff members have any links with terrorism. So this puts a lot of... I mean, this is taken further with a partner vetting scheme that was introduced also in Palestine, which requires any uh, local NGOs receiving funds from a US organisation to actually provide very specific details of their staff and trustees such as passport numbers and um, telephone numbers and all this kind of thing which are then uh, scrutinised in a uh, data system back in in the US to ensure that there's no um, contact uh, no association with terrorism Um, okay let me just go on a bit. Yeah. Um, the other dimensions of institutionalized second order threat development NGOs relates to the anti radicalization work, um, community based projects and programs, and also hearts and minds work. Um, hearts and minds work, of course, goes, has its history also in Malaysia, in Vietnam, which is when uh, the, you have a two pronged approach to counter surgency. On the one hand, uh, military. Uh, military um, engagement but complementing that also with a more ideological uh, strategy of trying to win the hearts and minds of people so they don't align themselves with your enemy. So in in the Cold War era that would have been uh, you you want to have an anti-communist ideology. In the post 9-11 context it's making sure people do not uh, sympathise with so-called terrorists. Um, the Provincial Reconstruction Teams, PRTs, are the emblematic sort of expression of that. These have been used in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is where once the military occupy um, an area, the strategy then is to, to keep that area and to have dividends with, um, with peace and to, um, to provide things like schools and clinics... Uh, for people to, to persuade them that actually they're better off um, with um, this, this, this um, actor. Um, and development projects as well. In the anti-radicalisation work... Um, actually, I'll just go on a bit. So, so just to illustrate, this context of moving towards the more ideological goal is marked a shift, actually, because after the London bombings in 2005... The government then switched its tactic, realising or saying that you you, you cannot counter-terrorism by coercive means, by military. You also need to do work at the the ideological level as well. So you need soft measures as well. And this, of course, is expressed in Tony Blair's speech when he says we will will not win the battle against global extremism. And note here the UK government also dropped the the phrase of the war on terror thereafter. Stopped talking about that and uh, shifted to using phrases such as violent extremism or global extremism. Unless we win it at the level of values as much as force. So these are some examples of hearts and minds um, activities in Afghanistan. Um, the building of schools and clinics in Afghanistan. There's recently been a report issued um, h- critical of the kind of quick impact project, projects that have been done by the military, in, particularly in Afghanistan, uh, because the difficulty now for the Afghan government as, uh, aid is with, um, as, sorry, as military withdraws is how to maintain all of these schools and clinics which are being built. Um, so that they are now being sort of cut back as a result. Um, yeah. So part of the Hearts and Minds group's work is also about anti-radicalisation activities, and um, in the UK, this perhaps the emblematic program of that is the Prevent program, which is set up under the Labour government, uh, which basically. Gave money to the Department of Communities and Local Government to sponsor projects in Muslim-dominated communities in the UK, um, for the purposes—well, it's disputable what the purposes are, anyway. But but anyway, to to bring sort of Muslim, to give uh, resources to Muslim communities, to um, counter in some way more radical views in the community, and give support to moderate. in the vertical commas, Muslim members of the community. Um, so a UK government official we talked to in Kenya was... It's quite, quite interesting because what you see is this merging together the ideas of Islam and terrorism, and therefore Muslim communities become, come under suspicion, which is, 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 is problematic. Uh, So he said, well, if you look at the engagement of donors with Muslim civil society, it's much greater now in 2007 than it was before, and this is because of 9-11. We're not doing the same with Hindu groups or Buddhist groups. Uh, We wouldn't engage in Muslim groups as we're doing if it wasn't because of Islamic extremism. Um, And similarly, a EU official, we interviewed in Nairobi, said, well, why do we really want to engage in Muslim communities? It's because of uh, the threat of terrorism. Um, But this hearts and minds work and anti-radicalisation work creates lots of dilemmas as well for community organisations and local and international um, NGOs. Um, Just to highlight some of these, one of the problems is when the military starts doing development and the military go in using civilian vehicles, civilian uh, dress and so on, it's confusing for local populations. Um, As an NGO worker of a said in Kabul, the presence of military actors in the provision of humanitarian assistance endangers our relationship with communities. Military personnel providing relief blurs the line since communities can't tell the difference between who is military and who is an NGO. And what um, development NGOs are worried about is their own aid workers being attacked because they seem to be aligned with the military um, and the... um, incumbent government. Um, So, and it's it's problematic. Like another, this is a director of a women's um, NGO in Herat, um, who said, well, we're a bit afraid of linking with the provincial reconstruction team. If we bring them to our awareness programs, people would be quite worried uh, why they're sitting with people with guns. So... (laughs) Right, I'll move on to the third part of the talk before I finish off soon, I've got five minutes, mm-hmm. is the responses of development NGOs, society actors to this, because this I think is very interesting, and, and really uh, draws out some of the dilemmas and contradictions. Um, if, if we look at what happened re- first of all in Europe um, and in the United States, initially in the the early years it was mainly human rights groups and Muslim leaders, community leaders human rights activists, anti-war protesters who began who challenged really what the government was doing with the extraordinary legislation um, and pointed out what the potential concerns were of these so mainstream civil society was actually quite quiet in their reactions um, until mainly partly because they weren't feeling them themselves the impact of some of these regulations. So, for example, the, the seven charities that, and foundations that were placed on the uh, de- newly, uh, cat- new category of designated organisations in the US were all Muslim organisations. And yet it, the mainstream NGO actors didn't want to really acknowledge or take up the issues that they were facing. Um, And it was only when the legislation or or certain regulations began to hit them, such as the US voluntary guidelines for non-profit sector in 2005, or in the UK, when uh, Gordon Brown introduced uh, um, the uh, report on charities and counter-terrorism, that they sort of finally began to get their act together to to look at this more closely. So it's an interesting process, and it raises a lot of questions around the impact of government funding um, on NGOs, um, their willingness to speak out. Um, but since then, it, there's been a lot of, you know, very positive activity undertaken by development NGOs. There've been new NGOs set up to monitor the impact of counterterrorist legislation, like the Charity and Security Network in the uh, US. In um, the, the in Europe, there's been uh, the Humana- humanitarian forum was set up to. Uh, to increase awareness and knowledge of Muslim charities and to assist with um, improving the procedures of transparency and governance in Muslim charities so they could sort of armour themselves uh, better against some of the um, effects of the uh, climate and the uh, uh, regulations. Um, But I think this raises a whole lot of questions for civil society actors, First of all, you know, how do you looking at that context of hearts and minds work in counterinsurgency, which we've seen in Malaysia, we've seen Vietnam, we've seen it in Afghanistan, Iraq, how do you maintain principles of neutrality, impartiality and independence as a humanitarian actor? It's very difficult and it invo- clearly will involve a lot of compromises and and what to do if your approach to become involved in uh, military agendas. And from our interviews in Afghanistan, it's clear that there's a range of different views and responses amongst NGOs. Some have no problem cooperating with military and see it as pragmatic, best thing to do. Others are fiercely resistant. Um, the second thing is, how do you maintain the trust of partners when you're under pressure to comply? You've got to comply with this anti terror certificate. Uh, partner vetting, what do you do? Because your partners are... The, how do you say to your partners that you've been working in the field with for ages, well, you know, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to check all the staff in your organisation. Please give us all the details so we can cross-check with our security databases. Uh, so it's, it's, it's problematic. The third point I want to make is I think it raises issues around solidarity because the slowness of the mainstream uh, voluntary sector, non-governmental sector to actually sort of assist or look more closely at the effects of the uh, extraordinary measures on uh, Muslim organisations, suggests that, well, really, you know, they didn't really see Muslim community groups or Muslim organisations, Muslim charities, as part of their world. So you've got to ask yourself, well, everyone's talking about civil society, but how were these actors within civil society seeing each other? Um, two more points. How do you engage with security agendas in a way that doesn't compromise your priorities, values, and independence? I think that that's also very important. And the last question, which and I think it's the hardest, what do you then do with the scaffolding of measures targeting uh, charities, NGOs, and nonprofits that are in place? They are in place now. You know, what what c- should they be removed? Perhaps. They won't be applied and they become dormant and that's fine, but they can always be resuscitated to be used again. Should the voluntary sector, should non-profits, should NGOs be actually looking closely at this and saying, well, actually, these times, there's no need anymore for extraordinary, extraordinary measures and legislation. Surely these should be removed. Um, And I want to leave you with that thought. Thank you.
1: Um, Thank you, Jude. And just before it questions, your question about whether there's anti-terrorism certificates in Australia, not called as such, but certainly a part of accreditation, is to check that the process is in place to the end user, if you want a, uh, a term for it. So that's checked. And then there's regular audits of the policy um, by the by the DFAT now DFAT audit team so so yes they, they do keep track of it. but it's but it's very difficult because you get lists of names you know, who's who you know. It, you know it becomes a little bit unrealistic the second interesting point is that the Australian uh, the press conference yesterday that the, the defense minister and a relevant general uh, had to answer the rather difficult question was one of the ag- one of the organizations they're sending arms to um, in these in these coming days is a listed organisation. I think it's a KKPK, <laughs> a Kurdish group. <laughs> so with just a couple of those little comments, um, any who wants to start with the questions. Yes, the back. Um,
3: I'm just struggling with the idea of uh, uh, values. I'm um, just thinking of that uh, uh, Blair station about how we try to quite the left fight on the level of values. Um, values as a discussion, and, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you, there were civic courses and things like that and in schools and a lot of that sort of discussion. But values, uh, more recently, are, yeah. in my experience, really discussed in a very direct sort of way. So when Tony Blair thinks about fighting, using aid and fighting on values, is, is it just a sort of a simple... Osmosis. Look, we deal with poverty, people will then basically develop other priorities and they won't be interested in terrorist groups. But that's not really about values. How does that then come to a level of, well, they'll see that uh, we're you know, a, a, a wonderful society where we're sort of driven by all these values. And even though we don't mention all these sort of wonderful things like world law or whatever it is he's referring to, it's going to sort of rub off. Um, I mean, where where do these people think that this discussion,
2: this transfer of values, is taking place? I think it's a really um, good question. <laughs> um, well, one one thing is through various means, like part of this would involve um, increasing the amount of dialogue. You know, inviting Muslim leaders into government, which has happened in the UK, um, into discussion with government. Um, uh, organizing interfaith dialogues, you know, money has gone into that. Um, if you look at the aid budgets, there's been a significant increase in the uh, amount of budget in aid given to education in um, Pakistan and, and on, from America as well um, into Muslim majority countries. So the idea then is, is presumably to shape somehow. Uh, the kind of agenda, that, the curriculum that, that t- occurs in madrasas. Um, um, and um, I think the, another part from the um, leaders, but also another target is the youth. So in the UK, the, I mean, a lot of this money that was going to the community uh, anti radicalization, anti extremism projects were mainly trying to target youth and sort of give youth something to engage with that wasn't. Wasn't going to make them vulnerable to being run over, won over by radical, uh, radical, um, radicalists. Yeah, and um, to um, support um, moderate, so-called moderate Muslim leaders in uh, promoting their version of Islam. Um, in Kenya, there was a very interesting development project, which was phrased in terms of community de- youth community development project in the coastal area of Kenya which we've written about in the book and um, that actually again is the same thing is of providing resources to groups that could be vulnerable and I guess through the the people with, uh, doing the project to encourage certain kind of activities that uh, all contribute towards um, greater tolerance or um Rule of law notions in a very indirect way. So, you know how effective any of it is. I mean, who knows? It's the same with hearts and minds work in in conflict situations. I don't know really how really how effective that can be. Yep. Should we take two questions together? Yeah, we'll together? take the two yeah. together. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for your presentation. I know a lot of civil NGOs have talked a lot about the negative impacts of securitisation and limits to work and um, that kind of thing, but from, from what some of what you've been saying, it seems it might be a bit of a positive impact in some way, in the sense that perhaps more is being invested in certain communities. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay, thanks
4: for your talk to you. Um, this might be a tri- trivial idea, <coughs> I just raised it. in talking about the reasons for the rapid securitization made since nine 11 uh, you're looking mainly at the quick smoking hole in and-
2: Yeah, okay, thank you. I think your question about affected populations is very pertinent, which is why at the beginning of the talk, I talked about it being not only about repression and exclusion and this, but it's also positive and uh, inclusionary in the sense that we have seen a huge increase in the amount of resources going, for example, in, at the community level in, um, in the UK, which and uh, greater attention being uh, paid to, to the uh any specific issues in those communities than before. Uh, also, a, a good number of the um, Muslim charities have benefited considerably. And Islamic Relief has uh, received a lot of more money. Uh, in, uh, Islamic Relief in the UK has received you know, considerable funding and support from DFID. Um, so there have been benefits as well. Um, so the story is not all negative at all. Um, on, on, in terms of Yeah, yeah, I can see what you mean because aid is more important. I mean, I think what is is bigger and there's more funding in it. And actually, you have these tensions as well between, well, I shouldn't say that. (laughs) I mean, in the UK, you know, between Foreign Office and military and development. I mean, because they were all sort of brought in to work together in this counterterrorism agenda, and it sets up all kinds of tensions around how you do things and funding and this, that, and the other. Um, I mean, what I think is very interesting about, like any any kind of Discourse. This whole argument about poverty and terrorism, about which there is little evidence, but actually also, development organisations are also quick to make use of that as well because it's a way of justifying your existence and ensuring you get increased fun- funding. So um, it, it's it, it's it's an ambiguous um, ambiguous area.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, I got Stephen and Freddie.
4: Thanks. Uh, thanks. <laughs> but, I mean, did you reflect on the future, especially with the rise of this Islamic State? You know, the number of people going over the fight. I mean, do you think this is going to intensify? You know, it's not going to go away? I, I, I don't know to yeah. your view on that. And second, you know, draw you out a bit. I mean, you seem to be quite against all this securitization. And I can see there are drawbacks and trade-offs. But things like betting and certification, I can also see they're good ideas, right, both to keep public confidence in the aid program yeah, because, you know, there is war on terror. Right? These are groups we don't want to support. Right? So yeah, okay. As well as Yes.
2: Um, yeah, I, yeah, I take what you're saying. The question is how you go around it. I mean, the the level of detail required and the amount of work for NGOs. I mean, and, uh, development NGOs, you know, if they've been working for a partner for a long time, they, they've got a pretty good idea, and they work in the region for a long time, that this organisation seems okay. And in some contexts, it's very difficult. I mean, what do you do in, in, um, you know, Hamas is an elected government, Hamas provides a lot of welfare, Is a terrorist organisation in the United States. Um, (laughs) My question is, my reply would be, well, I take a point, but maybe there are other ways of, of, of dealing with this do we need these extraordinary measures i mean it's a reaction of government to understandably in it to introduce extraordinary measures and uh, measures legislation and regulations to deal with a perceived crisis as it's a knee-jerk reaction and i think we need to just stand back a th- bit and think well which parts of this actually are maybe quite a good idea like you say well we need to Vet our partners, but NGOs have always done that in the past. I mean, they're not going to unless <laughs> they're not going to. You know, we must go and find some, you know, terrorist organisations. But if you find, you know, in very complex situations like Syria, um, Palestine, who is who actually, you know, if I was to be vroctious, say who is a terrorist? It's very difficult to tell, which is why it's been difficult to for the UK government to make decisions about who to s- support. For example, in Syria, it's very unclear who's who. Um, sorry, you asked me about the the future. Yes, it's all it all looks very grim, doesn't it? Um, I mean I think what what concerns me as well, I mean in many ways what I've been talking about is um, it's been about NGOs, but it's illustrative, illustrative illustrative of how a whole climate of fear and um, first order counter terrorist measures percolate into other areas. And I think probably where we're going to see the effects of the Syria issue is is going to be particularly in relation to immigration policy, asylum policy, um, education as well, because universities in the UK and and US and probably I suspect in Australia are supposed to tell the government if if there are any uh, sort of radical students amongst their midst. Um, I'm <laughs> not, thing, not saying people comply <laughs> with that at all but um, um, so I think that would be my concern with the current crisis. You've got a lot of the scaffolding in place with regard to NGOs. I'm not sure what more you you would want to do um, so my concern I think for the future would be how is this going to, to affect further immigration policy or asylum and the way people think about it because what happens is then that you know, asylum seekers, uh, migrants become associated with a potential threat. I think that's very worrying.
1: And this came to the fore about two or three days ago with a few government statements. FedEck.
4: Mm-hmm. <coughs> well, thank you for a very interesting presentation. I just wanted to ask a bit more about um, how all these changes over time. Um, I mean, it's interesting at the moment, at the very time when. A lot of Western forces seems to sort of be moving out of Afghanistan, Iraq, etcetera. We are going back in into Iraq again, right? So it raises interesting questions about sort of intention in terms of policy objectives and then looking back and looking at whether we achieved what we wanted to do. So and the, the quote you gave from Colin Powell about this, this idea of NGOs being a multiplied force, I think it's from 2005 or something like that, which is nearly ten years yeah. ago. So my question is, uh, if you could just talk a little bit to the question of how these things sort of changed over time. Um, say the State Department, for example, uh, the sort of securitization of NGOs, is it considered to be as important as 10 years ago? Has it sort of changed uh, in significance?
2: Okay, I mean, I think if I gave quotes in the beginning which were uh, were... Benjamin, going back to the earlier quote, was in 2010. Mm. So it's fairly recent. And Hillary Hillary Clinton's point about the three stools of foreign policy is also recent. Mm. I mean, I haven't done research in the last two or three years, in particular on the State Department, so I'm not sure how much of an issue it is. Uh, Well, I believe it is still an issue, yes. I do believe it is still an issue. Uh, But a lot of the, as I say, infrastructure has been put in place... Uh, for dealing with that, and I think it's always there uh, to be resuscitated, if necessary. Yep.
4: Thanks, Professor. I was just wondering your thoughts on the role of the private sector, both at the regulation and but also perhaps going forward, um, looking at situations like we have in Iraq, um, perhaps uh, NGOs and, and private protection if that would that be possible?
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, we didn't investigate the private sector, but they were obviously hit by the uh, Financial Action Task Force recommendation eight, which particularly was targeted at money service transactions. Which um, money service exchanges can be very important for people um, in countries where the banking system is is barely exists, like Somalia, for example. And it's the main means through which people transfer money. Um, in terms of private sector and NGOs there's very I- interesting work has been done uh, by a french uh, academic called i've forgotten his first name uh, Andre renouf um, who looks at the way in which NGOs themselves begin to securitize <coughs> themselves and the con- and the dilemmas faced is, do we we need security guards but uh, are we going to accept that those security guards will be armed so there's that kind of debate going on amongst humanitarian NGOs. I mean, also about you know the issues of of remote working, where um, you're unable to to go beyond your um, capital city or the regional capital um, into the villages because it's too dangerous. And then there are questions around well, who goes in if at all, and do you have um, do you hire private? Do, do you have the military accompanied Do you go or do you hire? Uh, private guards to protect you. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I think we've got time for one more. Mm-hmm. Oh.
4: Um, is there any uh, obvious case of uh, collaboration or the relationship between NGOs and terrorists um, or the
0: fear of um, UK US is just mistrust about the mistrust of
2: the Yeah. The Charity Commission in the UK investigated 10 um, organisations for suspected links with terrorism and found two. Uh, that one was the um, uh, Tamil Relief Organisation in the UK and the second one was uh, the Finsbury Mosque in North London, which is now cleared. But um, So those two were identified as having a, a links to terrorism. There are lots of accusations... But, in fact, the evidence base for that is is very thin, very thin indeed. And if you actually look at, you know, the funding of uh, some of these attacks, it's mainly through kind of criminal activity, drug activity, um, not through particularly NGOs, um, and and not a lot of money is needed in the end anyway. Apparently, uh, the attacks in the UK cost £8,000. Oh, and a guesstimate was made, which is about sixteen thousand Aussie dollars. So this is not to say there aren't leaks. I'm not saying there aren't. And we, and if there are, then this is a big problem for development NGOs because it's it's spoiling the reputation of all the other ones. So it's very important that the sector is is protected, which is uh, what the Charity Commission in the UK sees this role as, as trying to ensure that any um, kind of action against development NGOs in the name of counter-terrorism preserves the reputation and probity of the sector. Um, But there's very little evidence of such associations being there. Okay, quick last one. Well, it's just um,
1: considering when we've got the different governments have different
2: terrorist organisation lists, and international NGOs uh, wanting to work, uh, you know, across in different areas. And if you've looked at how they balance that, if you're an international NGO, you know, with being, uh, dealing with the UK government and dealing with the American government, if you want to work and help out with the Palestinians, for example. Um, and if you've looked at that and, and the challenges that they face, um, is it usually just particular it is it just
3: dependent on where their base is, or
2: where the international NGO has its roots? Well, I think if you're re- if you're receiving US uh, state funding or money that's coming from government, then you you will be then you will be subject to the anti-terrorism certificate regulations. I mean, as a UK NGO, um, you know we, there is that um, legislation, but of course anybody is going to want to be careful to be seen to ensure that the partners they work with are um, not on a designated list, assuming that the designated list is right. Because as I said, in America, Interpal is a designated organisation, but not in the UK.
1: OK, I think we'll wrap it up then. So
0: Thank you, thank you June.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.